Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Montessier Zaman. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you for hosting me. It's my pleasure. Montessier completed his Alamea studies in South Africa. He then specialized in Islamic law and Hadith, and he received an MA in Islamic studies from the Markfield Institute of Higher Education here in the UK. He is based now in Dallas, in Texas, where he teaches advanced Hadith and law at Kalam Institute and serves as an imam in his community. Now, he's just published a book called The Height of Prophet Adam at the Crossroads of Science and Scripture. And this is my copy, uh, which I have. I've read it all. Very good indeed. And there's an afterword by Professor Jonathan Brown, which is also very worth reading, too. And this book explores scholarly efforts to treat the conflict between Hadith regarding Prophet Adam's height and the scientific data. And we'll read out the Hadith in a moment so you can see <clears throat> what the issue is. And what may appear as a straightforward Hadith about the father of mankind, Adam, it brings to the fore a whole range of interconnected disciplines like epistemology and science and archaeology, the evolution of Hadith analysis, and the Israeliat. We'll explain what they mean in a second. Um, so today, uh, Montessier will give a talk entitled The Anatomy of Hadith Hermeneutics. The Anatomy of Hadith Hermeneutics. And we will look at the conflict between science and Hadith, which is for many a crisis of faith, uh, many Muslims today. And the notion, uh, the mistaken notion, perhaps, that the scholars of Islam's rich intellectual history were oblivious to the issues plaguing the minds of some modern Muslims. They certainly were not oblivious. And that was one of the, the fascinating things in reading this book, going back many, many centuries, uh, many of the, the issues that arise for us also arose for them. And it's very instructive to listen to their analysis and propose solutions to this issue. So, Montessier, over to you. Thank you, Paul, for inviting me to present my research on this topic. There's much that can be said, but to preface this, I want to say, I hope the viewers don't get lost in the specifics of this hadith, the hadith which states, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Prophet Adam with a height of 60 cubits, which is give or take 90 feet. And later on, the hadith states that humankind has been decreasing in height ever since that occurrence. Though my research focuses on this specific hadith, what I hope to achieve is provide a framework and model that Muslims can employ when engaging with problematic hadith in general. And just a quick backstory to this hadith, it started with a text message that I received from a family friend. She was asking, 
how do I make sense of this? I'm teaching in a local Darul Ulum and I'm finding it difficult to make sense of some of the archaeological and scientific concerns that my students are leveling against this hadith. What do you have to say about it? And at the time, I consulted a particular commentary on the famous hadith collection, Sahih Muslim. The author of that commentary, he's the famous legal scholar, Muhammad Mufti Taqi Uthmani. Mufti Taqi Uthmani is called Fatul Mulhim. And he has about a page or two discussing this. And I sent it over, but then it just kept nagging me saying it didn't feel satisfactory. Mm. And there's much more beyond what we see at first blush. And as I began digging and digging, I realized that this one hadith is at the center of so many contentious issues, such as how much weight do we give Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim? What do we do in the face of archaeological and scientific conflict? What are Muslims' approach towards Isra'iliyat, biblical and pre-Islamic narratives? How do we deal with the narration, isolated narrations of some companions to the exclusion of others, so on and so forth. So I think as a preface, though we're going to be analyzing a specific hadith, I prefer the title, The Anatomy of Hadith Hermeneutics, Mm. because we can employ this to deal with Mm -hmm. other quote-unquote scientific issues Mm. or even moral conundrums that people face when dealing with the hadith yeah. and the hadith I, I, in specific. I just, want to, I just want to point out the word hermeneutics is a fancy word that scholars uh, like to use. I think it comes originally from uh, kind of Christian tradition and other traditions. It basically means interpretation. How do we interpret text? But it is, yeah. it's a nice, long, fancy scholarly term that yeah. helps to yeah. not necessarily make it yeah. understandable, but anyway. Yeah. So... The hadith in uh, particular is recorded in Sahih al-Bukhari and uh, Sahih Muslim, among other sources. And as I'll point out, there are a plethora of transmissions for these different hadiths. Mm. In my particular analysis, I group them into four bundles, and I show how variations of this hadith are found in all of the major collections in four mother hadiths or bundled hadiths, you know, race, uh, transmitted through 70 different routes. Right. And before we get into the weeds, I think some preliminary thoughts are important. And that is, it's, a, it's, it's an argument put forward by the famous yet somewhat controversial in certain circles, Ibn Taymiyyah, who's a brilliant scholar and his contributions are often misunderstood. But that's a separate conversation. He posits this argument that reason and revelation, which were often put against one another, there isn't really a conflict between reason and revelation. Rather, it's the weight of reason that's perhaps at loggerheads with the weight of revelation. Mm. And my argument is we can extend this analogy to empirical concerns as well. Because we learn from the Quran and we learn from the Hadith that... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. 
cards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The world around us is, and uh, empirical realities, empirical truths are a source of, you know, knowledge. Yep. Empirical truth. It's, it's, it's a source of knowledge. So if we know that to be true, how can I use my knowledge of science and archaeology to understand the Quran and Hadith? And what do I do at a point of conflict? Do I choose one over the other? Or is it upon closer examination that it's the weight of archaeology and science that I should be questioning or the weight of this particular point of revelation? And I should add that what makes this conversation more advanced and for my purposes more intriguing is that when we deal with similar issues in the Qur'an, from the Muslim perspective, there's no question about transmission. Mm. It's definitive in its transmission. So now I have to roll up my sleeves and see, okay, how can I make sense of it? How can I reinterpret it? How can I you know, understand it in light of science or archaeology? Whereas when you're dealing with hadith, you have varied epistemological degrees. Some could be mutawatir, some could be sahih, some could be of a high accepted level, and some may not be of that mm-hmm. level. Yeah. So I hope this uh, you know, presentation, but this argument underscores the idea that you know, when you're dealing with hadith that are quote-unquote problematic, it can be much more complicated, yet more rewarding than doing a similar exercise with the Qur'an. And as Ibn Taymiyyah po- pointed out several centuries ago, it's not so much a question of epistemological sources because we accept all of these sources. It's more about the weight that we give to each respective source. Mm-hmm. And the second uh, point, if I may continue, is the idea of the evolution of hadith criticism. Meaning, can an argument be made that as we observe technological, scientific, astronomical, whatever the area is, advancements, can we revisit the way classical scholars critique, analyze, authenticated hadith? Mm. And the answer to that is a resounding yes, but it's not so much as reinventing the wheel, but taking their developed usul and framework to come to a conclusion, if they were aware of what we were, they would come to the similar conclusion. And that's the main contention here that there's no innovative, innovative or new or unprecedented mm-hmm. arguments being put forward here. It's the framework of classical scholars. And, and just because also science itself is not a static body of knowledge, it, it's constantly developing and changing. And as you referenced in the book with Thomas Kuhn, the, 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 the American philosopher of science, who mentioned, talked about paradigm shifts. Science itself goes through revolutions in, in its worldview. So to hitch one's understanding to a particular view of science now may be out of date, even in a year's time or 50 years' time. So that, that's sure, another, sure. another complexity on this as well. Yeah. yeah. And I think the balance needs to be sought out, where on the one hand, we understand 
the arguments put forward from the philosophy of science in that science isn't static, it's fluctuating and changing. So we should anticipate a paradigm shift. While on the other hand, we're not so subjective and relativist that we give no weight to science. We can always use the argument that it changes at the expense of observable realities because scholars in the past understood that fine line and they employed it. Good. Okay. So, um, so th- that's another point uh, worth underscoring. Okay. Now, moving forward, what's the methodology that we're going to be using? And the methodology is two steps. The first step is I, as a researcher, or I, as an average Muslim, when I'm confronted with this conflict between science and scripture or reason and scripture, the first responsibility I have is to weigh everything so that if I'm going to give a particular position on or a view on one of these two, I should know the weight of each of these two. Mm. So I will look into the science and archaeology, see what the experts have to say, how definitive is the research? Is this something that can be contested? Is it a theory? Is it a fact? which I do in the book in respect to the particular concerns that are raised. Mm. And then I do the exact same thing for the ahadith on the subject. So legal theorists, they've outlined this process of dhan and qata', dhaniya and qata'iya on the scale of probabilistic to definitive, that if a hadith is transmitted to me, how much certainty do I have that the Prophet of Allah salam, actually said this? Do I have overwhelming certainty? Do I have some doubt? Now, once I've done this, I've given a particular uh, percentage of confidence in the, 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 the empirical concerns. I'll say the research would make this 74% certain. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, I analyze the routes of hadith and I will say, this is about 80% certainly transmitted from the Prophet ﷺ. Now I'm done with the first step. Now I go to the second step. And this is the main thesis, which is when I'm confronted with similar problematic hadith, I have three options of what I could do. The first is harmonization, what mm. they call jama' or interpretation ta'wil. I try to harmonize the two sources Mm. and say, hey, you know what? If you look a bit closer, the two are actually in conformity. If you study the two with a closer eye, you'll conclude that there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Now, that obviously has some limitations. Otherwise, you'll fall into the problems that a number of uh, more progressive or even classically philosophically leaning uh, scholars come to in that it's so flexible, you can flex it to your... Yeah. whims however you want there has to be some there have to be some parameters that dictate and inform my that wheel and my harmonization mm-hmm. now if i don't have a feasible harmonization then i have to prefer one over the other which mm-hmm. is known as tarjih and that's a painstaking process where you literally have to analyze each route of transmission to see whether or not i can confidently prefer, uh, prefer the science over the hadith or vice versa and after you've exhausted your hermeneutic toolkit and you have nothing left, now your third option is to do tawakkuf and just suspend judgment and say, yeah. you know what, both sides are equally compelling and I really don't 
know uh, how to resolve this, I will simply say Allah knows best what the correct answer is, and I'll wait for something to tip the scales in and, the favor of either side. And, and this very, very position of suspending judgment, if you like, I, I was surprised to read, is a very respectable option in in the, in this field. The many prominent scholars said, "Well, actually, I simply can't make a judgment," and and they suspend judgment and wait. Uh, indefinitely, I suppose. So this is actually a real option. Yeah. It's not a cop out, as I'm trying to say. It's a, yeah. it's, yeah. it's a, it's a um, an admission of ep- epistemological humility that we don't have all the knowledge at at, at at our hand. But maybe we one day we will one day, but not yet, anyway. Absolutely. Hmm. Um, historically speaking, how have scholars dealt with this hadith? Did they find it problematic or not? Well, hmm. to answer that question, first we have to see: is there a true conflict, or is this something that people who just want to bend backwards to any person who wants to cry about hadith, is that what we're doing? Or do we legitimately have a reason to, you know, roll up our sleeves and say, let's get to the bottom of what the conflict is. And my argument in the paper or in the book is, yes, there is a strong case that could be made. And I divide this into what we call positive evidence and negative evidence. And what I mean by that is positive evidence is the case against the implications of the hadith. What are the implications of hadith? Well, the first is that Prophet Adam, alayhi salam, was around the ballpark of 90 feet tall. Mm -hmm. That's the first issue. And the second issue is his progeny, our ancestors, were equally tall and they just gradually decreased until the height we have today. And the positive evidence against this is manifold, but to begin, it's Galileo's famous square cube law, where he says when something's enlarging to, let's say, any particular height, what happens is is the mass increases more rapidly than its strength or cross-sectional area. And if you have somebody who is, say, um, uh, let's say, what they call reference man, the average height of somebody, if they were, you know, made to be 90 feet tall, they would be exponentially weaker, but exponentially heavier. Mm. So that's one. And then you have other arguments of gravity, whether the blood can, you know, reach the the nervous system, thermoregulation, the skin and bone density. The argument goes on and so on and so forth. It's a very lengthy uh, case that's made well established. And some people did raise a concern. Have you consulted any Muslim scientists about this, Muslim scholars? And the answer is yes. I spent two, three years Mm -hmm. making sure that this is not just some, uh, you know, wacky atheist professor out there who read this hadith and wants to, I spoke to really practicing Muslim uh, scientists and scientists in particular who kind of share similar sentiments. Is it worth reading out the hadith or opening it up just for the... Sure, 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 sure. So I'll just read, read, uh, I'm obviously reading uh, from the book, from the introduction, um, and uh, the hadith, uh, which is narrated from... uh, Abu Huraira, that the Prophet upon him be peace, said, Allah created Adam with a height of 60 cubits. He said, go and greet that group of angels and hear how they return your greeting. There we go, up on the screen. That is the method of greeting for you and your progeny. Adam said, peace be upon you. And they replied, peace be upon you and Allah's mercy. Thus, 
they added and Allah's mercy. Everyone who enters paradise will be in Adam's image. And people have been decreasing until this day. And I notice you've highlighted in red the two uh, passages of concern. And this is in Sahih Bukhari, no less. Um, so this is obviously an authentic hadith, according to scholars anyway. So there we go. Yeah. And as you can tell, I've highlighted both parts, the first and the second part. Mm. And there's uh, very similar concerns. And then you have the archaeology, um, which states that, you know, over thousands of years, human height has been relatively the same within the ballpark of, you know, four feet to like seven feet, which is somewhat of a very, uh, it's a fair estimate uh, around uh, that height. So um, in, in the face of this, how have classical scholars responded? Mm. And I, um, I grouped them into three uh, categories. I can share my screen here so everybody can have a look. Um, oh, yeah. So there are three groups. The first group, which forms the majority, the vast majority, in fact, uh, is they would accept it wholeheartedly. They didn't find it a point of concern. Meaning somebody like Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, a scholar of Medina, he would narrate this and not even bat an eye. There was no question for him. Imam Nawawi, he's very forceful in his acceptance of this. In fact, there's this vizier of the Baghdadi court. His name is Ibn Hubayra. He, you know, he posits an interesting question where he says, if Adam was this tall, what about his horse? What about his clothing? What about his food? Well, he only talks about Adam's horse, which is, if you're going to take it to the logical conclusion, then you would have to argue that Adam's horse and his dwellings and his food and everything else was equally large. Yeah. The, famous yeah. 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 the famous historian, Al-Maqrizi, he says the same thing that we should accept it. And then he talks about the idea of how human understanding and knowledge is limited, so we shouldn't object to it. Now, that's the vast majority. There is a minority, albeit still a presence of scholars, who were more critical and dismissive of the notion that uh, Adam salam, in particular, but just humans in general, were never these uh, giants several mm -hmm. times larger than us. One is this somewhat enigmatic historian. His name is Mutahhar ibn Tahir al-Maqdisi from the 4th century. He has this uh, hadith. He has this his, uh, book on tarikh in history called Al-Bad'u wa tarikh And in there, he says, not only myself, but wa kathirun min al-Muslimin. Large groups of Muslims take issue with the idea that Prophet Adam was 90 feet tall because it goes against what we consider to be customary. Mm. And I have highlighted over here manuscript issue only because there's a scholar who said this was interpolated into the text by the French uh, Orientalist who edited the book. <laughs> but uh, I kind of argue that's, um, you know, that's a straw man argument. It's a red herring and it's unfair. I went back to the primary original manuscript housed in uh, the Suleymaniyah in Turkey and you have the words as reproduced 
by the Orientalists. And you actually have, you actually have a photograph of the original manuscript in here, just in case anyone's skeptical, and you can see yeah. uh, the words are actually there. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. The second scholar is the famous Ash'ari theologian, <laughs> Abu Bakr ibn Furaq, from the 5th century. And in brief, he says, um, any argument made that the prophets or humans in the past were extraordinarily larger than what we think to be the norm, these reports stem from the Isra'iliyat. Now, what are the Isra'iliyat? comes from Isra'ili, which is uh, our Isra'iliyah, um, singular, which refers to pre-Islamic reports mm. from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and at times even reports and fables that are uh, prevalent in the Near East, our Near Eastern imagination. And sometimes these reports are funneled into the Muslim tradition and kind of take on a, a new guise, take on a new form because of the redaction and changes. And then the end product is what you call the Isra'iliyat. And that's a lengthy topic that Dr. Brown addresses in his uh, postscript. I, I about you were saying that, that scholars sort of filled in the details of the Quranic story, for example, with, with bits of Israeliat just to flesh out the story to give it some more colorful detail. But of course, it often came with other bits of information which may not be authentic and may not be true. And so you end up getting a sense of the unreliability or the corruption of the narrative. That I mean, as he says, right, the quest for filling in details is a fraught one because yeah. as you're filling in details, uh, as uh, Sufya Nathawri, one of the famous scholars of Hadith would say, you know, you're going to gather wood. You don't know if you're holding a... A piece viper. of wood, or is it a viper? Viper in the wood. Like, That's right. It's gonna, yeah. Very vivid imagery. My God, there could be a viper in my, <laughs> in my wood pile. Yeah. Run for the hill. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. then you have the famous historiographer Ibn Khaldun. Yeah. He says, um, when I read this, I thought, wow, this is like a really serious scholar. I mean, this guy invented yeah. history virtually, and he rejects this hadith for his own yeah. unique reasons. To, to be more, to, to be fair, he doesn't explicitly mention the hadith though he hints at it by saying the idea that humans were larger in the past. But you can deduce from that what he would say if he addressed the hadith directly. And then I say there are two scholars who are ambivalent. I say ambivalent because it's attributed to the famous eponym of the Maliki school, Imam Malik ibn Anas, that he rejected it. But it's not clear if he rejected this notion or a particular hadith that uh, carries and uh, conveys this notion because there are multiple routes of it. Yeah. But you can put him somewhere there. And the famous scholar to have suspended judgment was the scholar of Cairo, the expert of Hadith, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani from the 9th century uh, under the Mamluks. So I- I- in a nutshell, you can tell there's a wide variety, a kaleidoscope of approaches to this. To be fair, the vast majority is of one of acceptance, but there's still some scholars who have echoed or you know, expressed their concerns. And that comes back to the point we mentioned in the beginning, that let's not think we're somehow the first people to realize exactly. that there are some contentions. Yeah. Rather, scholars in the past have expressed similar sentiments. We just have to be uh, courageous enough to rummage through these you know, volumes and tomes of books to find what they have to say. Hmm. So... Um, yeah, so we could say that's the, uh, just uh, simple terms, that's how scholars have um, approached this uh, hadith in the past. 
let's go through what the second part of this, which is the main thesis of uh, the main argument, mm. which is um, there's a problem, there's a, a concern. How do I resolve this concern? Mm. And as I mentioned in the opening, let's not get lost in the specific hadith. Let's just think about any hadith that agitates my conscience. Yeah. The hadith states that the sun prostrates before the throne of Allah. Hadith state that I should, if a fly uh, falls into my water, one wing holds a poison while the other wing holds the antidote. So let me dip it in again. And uh, a laundry list of hadith that may uh, you know, fit this uh, criterion of being problematic. How do I deal with it? So we've mentioned three steps that we can take. The first step is interpretation. And uh, before you was a quote from the famous Sufi mystic, yet also great theologian and thinker, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, who addresses a particular hadith. And he says, even if it were authentic, would it not be easier to interpret it than reject evidence that is, which is conclusive and definitive or definite? And the idea here is when there is a wide scope to reinterpret the scripture, why are you, you know, making it a point, a purpose of your existence to agitate people's uh, conscience and to make things difficult for people when you can offer a plausible interpretation? Now, when we say plausible, that's to emphasize that anyone can come and make an interpretation. If I want, I can take any hadith and say, okay, when we say the Prophet Adam was 90 feet tall or Situna Viran, six cubits, 60 cubits, the number 60 here is esoteric. 60 actually means six. Mm. And if you want, it can mean five or four. That's baseless. You have no legs to stand on when you're making that argument. So there are some guidelines and parameters that should inform my process of ta'wil. Yeah. It should not be linguistically forced. It should be supported by the words of the Prophet ﷺ. You know how some people say, okay, and it's interesting because I was listening to your interview with uh, William Craig, and he made a similar argument in respect to Prophet Adam, the idea of mythology. Were the prophets of the past a myth or is what God communicates to us about the people of the past fully the truth or is there some divine deception involved and just imagery and, you know, some creativity is employed that was common in the Near East. And from the Muslim perspective, that's preposterous because we don't, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking to us in a language through a divinely revealed text. And if that text is not communicating to us truthfully, then that's a serious problem. So when I do interpret the text, I should not undermine it to say something that ultimately Allah or God would not have intended. And the second is to see whether I'm doing this that wheel and there's a need for it. And finally, when I do come up with an interpretation, it should not contradict other established evidence. So I'm interpreting it, you know, as they say, I don't want to be, um, I shouldn't lose the tree for the, I shouldn't lose the forest for the tree. You know, mm -hmm. there's tree and I'm like losing sight of the entire forest. Yeah. Okay. So how do some scholars interpret this? Mm -hmm. There's a famous scholar of the subcontinent. His name is Anwar Shah Al-Kashmiri, exceptional scholar of Hadith. 
uh, early 20th century. He says, why is everyone, you know, tripping over this hadith? Why is everyone so, so troubled? If you really think about it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is addressing the creation of our father Adam in paradise. He was that tall in paradise. And in paradise, the laws of physics and archaeology don't apply. And he was proportionately larger to his surroundings because we know everything there is much larger. So that's how large he was. So you can see him attempting to resolve this tension by interpreting the hadith, which at face value is saying he was that tall on earth because there's no restriction here. But then he's restricting it to the to Jannah. He's restricting it to paradise. And then how do you make sense of people, you know, decreasing in height? Well, he came at a particular height and then people have been decreasing ever since. Now, um, I do point out that there are some questions with this interpretation, uh, not least of which is if he was that tall in paradise and then he comes to earth with average human height and then people were decreasing, well, number one, the idea that there's this constant decrease in height is not supported by the data. And number two, if you look at the hadith, it doesn't seem to suggest this transition that happens. Mm. And the words that human decrease, uh, gradually decreasing, is quite explicit. So Mufti Taqi Uthmani in his Takmilat Fath al-Mulhim does an impressive attempt at saying that, you know, we can say that the hadith isn't saying people are gradually decreasing. It means that people have retained a decreased height ever since Adam السلام, came to this earth. As you can, you can see, it's a very uh, sophisticated process. And mm. I uh, share my thoughts on, is that a viable response mm. or counter response to that? Uh, this is just one interpretation. You have a number of others. One scholar says that Satuna Dhira'an, the number 60, is a way of expressing hyperbole. It means he was jiddan. He was very tall. Not that he was specifically 60. Some scholars, like the famous uh, Ubaidullah Sindhi, a political activist and scholar of the subcontinent, he says, uh, based on the thoughts of uh, the Indian revivalist, Shawaliullah, he says, this is known as Alamul Mithal, the, the realm of similitude. It's not his actual existence. It's this like nexus in between world in which he was that tall, which raises a number of other questions. Uh, Atiyah Saqar, the Mufti of Egypt, he says, oh, Dira over here should be redefined. Although classically everybody says it's you know, half a meter or uh, a foot and a half, we should understand it as like five centimeters. And then Situna Dira, no, there's nothing wrong with it. But as you can tell, when we've outlined what the parameters of an acceptable interpretation is, it becomes increasingly clear that you, can't, you don't have free reign to just interpret it how you want. So yeah. for instance, to say the number 60 expresses hyperbole, well, in Arabic, the number 70 expresses hyperbole, or the number 100, not any number that you want. And Qurtubi actually addresses this when a particular scholar tried to say, yes, this number shows hyperbole. And he says, wait, 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 hold your horses there. You can't just say that because you want to. The Arabs generally use the number 100 or the number 70 for that purpose. Yeah, fascinating. I hope that's clear in terms of how we can interpret some of the concerns with this hadith. But that's one of the things I like about your, your book is, it, is a thorough way you look at all these, all these explanations, 
and apparent solutions have been offered by serious scholars across the centuries. And you look at these forensically and carefully and give them their due weight. And, and you find most of them wanting, not all of them, but um, a lot of them are, are fall short of a of a very reasonable, critical appraisal, basically. You're, you're being a very scholar, very scholarly in your methodology. And uh, just to see you to see you at work in doing this page after page in the book, mm-hmm. it, it actually is a very satisfying uh, academic exercise, and I, I, I do commend yeah. you for that. It's, it's well, well worth. And, and honestly, honestly, it's nothing on my part. It's just I, I'm a translator of the scholarship of those before me. Uh, so yeah, as you can tell, this is all uh, rehashing and synthesizing what the brilliant minds that have preceded me. So uh, the first step is uh, interpretation. Now, it, as you can tell, some people can be hesitant to interpret the text because it's not as convincing which now brings us to the second step, which is prioritization. At some point, a, an interpretation is not going to serve me well. So I have to prefer either the science and archeology span or prefer the scripture. And again, this is not to approve or prefer the sources themselves, rather in this particular case, the weight of the sources. We accept science, we accept archeology, span but what you think to be an established fact may just be a whim or a theory that has very little weight. So the second process is tarjih. I want to quote the student of Ibn Taymiyyah. His name is Ibn al-Qayyim or Ibn al-Qayyim al-Jawziyyah. He, in his Zad al-Ma'ad, he talks about the nightly ascension of the Prophet ﷺ and how many people read these conflicting reports. And he says, instead of just trying to harmonize them all together and say, oh, he went on this ascension multiple times, mm-hmm. why not just say it happened once and a narrator made a mistake? It's not the end of the world. It's not anathema to say that. You have to have a solid uh, scholarly argument for it and then put it forward that perhaps somebody made a mistake. And the second is a Hadith scholar whose name is Ali ibn al-Madini. He says, until all the routes of a Hadith are not you know, collected and analyzed as a whole, its errors will not become apparent. Once, as you said, you know, forensically uh, dissecting each hadith, you begin to realize there's much more to it than the one hadith I may have been exposed to. Exactly. Yes, indeed. So, um, I'm not going to bore you all with the details, but in summary, as I mentioned, there are 70 routes of transmission for four hadith bundles. And once we gather and collate all of these routes of transmission, what do we conclude? Now, just to show what one particular transmission would look like, if you look at the chart uh, before you, I show here that, um, let's take hadith bundle one. This is, this, is trans- taken, so this, this is taken from the book, by the way. Uh, you have several yeah. graphs like this. So this is something you can uh, look for yourself if you get hold of the book. Yeah. So I show over here that there are multiple strata of transmission. The Prophet ﷺ transmits hadith number one to at least four companions. Right. So in gray are those companions who transmit the same hadith without the contentious wording. And those who are not highlighted in gray narrated with the contentious wording. And the point here is these words form part of a broader hadith. It's not the only part of the hadith. So I show here that in the first category, the first strata, you have three companions who do not transmit it. 
And then you have Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala an, who narrates it. But even from him, you have a conflict of transmission. Some of his students transmit it and some of his students do not transmit it. And as you go from link to link to link until the compilers of hadith, Imam Bukhari, Ibn Hibban, Bazar, Muslim, Imam Ahmad and others, you can see this variety of transmission which highlights it's not that straightforward. You have many routes of the exact same hadith without the problematic or contentious wording. What I find very interesting is obviously the, the hadith that is a good go back to that, the hadith that you, we've quoted from is, was from Bukhari, obviously. Um, yeah. But there's also uh, on the left hand side uh, hadith in Muslim, the other Sahih yeah. connection, which doesn't yeah. include this uh, tr- yeah. uh, problematic wording. So Sahih Muslim includes both versions. That's the point Uh that they include the version with it and the version without it. And I want to be very clear here. And this is something I need to emphasize and say in no uncertain terms. My argument here is not that because the narrators have differed, Mm. therefore it is untrue. That's not my argument. Some people have quoted me as saying that. I just want to set the record here. My argument, as I will point out later, is on the one hand, you have this overwhelming evidence from science and archaeology that give us a degree of certainty on the questions against this hadith. That's on the one side. Mm -hmm. On the other side, you have this hadith. How much confidence do we have, have on these hadith, even if they were transmitted in Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim? And the argument is, through a detailed analysis of its various routes of transmission, we can safely conclude that there is legitimate disagreement on their inclusion. Therefore, we don't dismiss the hadith, but we lower its epistemic certainty. We lower the amount of confidence we have in it. And once we lower the confidence and then we take a step back and compare the two sides of the conflict, now you can meaningfully say, okay, I am siding with the science in particular reference to these words in the hadith, not even the entire hadith. I hope that's clear. Yes. So so you're doing what Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, as you explained earlier on, he he didn't agree with those Asherite theologians who simply posited a conflict between akal and nakal, reason and revelation. No, no, no. He said there isn't really a conflict. You have to look at the uh, each individual epistemic weight that it has you know look at look at the hadith look at the quran look at this look at that and you weigh them up and then you come to uh, and so on, which is what you in a sense what you're doing um you, you, a tame analysis in a way oh the results of the analysis. ultimately i'm a firm believer that the traditional method that sunni scholarship has presented for us is robust and largely sufficient to deal with these problems Mm. All we need to do is not get caught up with the specific cases they dealt with, but rather adopt their methodology and mm. then reapply it to the cases based on our newfounded knowledge and understanding of the world around us. So based on that hadith analysis, um, what do we conclude? And we conclude that most of the transmitters for all four hadith narrate the contentious phrases narrate the hadith without the contentious phrases mm. and on each strata only so in the first strata only abu huraira the second strata his students some of them do some of them don't so on and so forth therefore this fact decreases the epistemic value of the contentious words 
thus making it making the words far more probabilistic in terms of their transmission. Meaning, the ikhtilaf of the ruwat alone is not sufficient for me to dismiss the hadith. Anyone who's worth their water, anybody who's, who understands anything about hadith knows that there's always a difference of transmission. There's always ikhtilaf among the narrators. And that's the idea of uh, what we call muwazana and sabrul marwiyat. But the point here is this analysis allows us to conclude that it dips, it decreases in its confidence, which now paves the way to see, can I now, you know, genuinely prefer science and archaeology in this particular case? So uh, I talk about a particular scholar and um, one scholar who's a Jordanian scholar who makes a similar argument. He says, you know, based on my study, the hadith and the archaeology are of a similar footing. You know, they're the same. And after going through his arguments, I show that he didn't do justice to the other side of the conflict. Like, for instance, he doesn't even address the positive issues. What, what, what are the arguments from physics? What are the arguments from scientists? That's complete science. That's absolutely absent in his uh, research. And number two, even the archaeology, he doesn't do the most convincing job to address it. But I had a conversation with him and he did say it was a very early research that I did. And, you know, based on what you're saying, I definitely uh, revisit uh, my conclusion. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And there's the famous scholar, his name is Sheikh Yunus Jompuri, of the late Sheikh Yunus Jompuri, one of the most phenomenal commentators of Hadith. He actually says, I accept the first part that Adam salam, was 90 feet tall in paradise. That's fine. But the last part the idea that human height has been decreasing, I feel it's a narrator insertion. Mm-hmm. In hadith terms, we call it idraj or mudraj. And his argument may you know, raise some eyebrows, but it's, it's, it's a compelling argument where he says, the famous companion Abu Hurairah mm-hmm. uh, you know, was in the company of the once upon a time Rabbi Ka'b al-Ahbar, and through their discussions, he learned a number of things, among which may have been the second point. And then his students, the students of Abu Huraira, at times would confuse what was prophetic marfu' for what was mawquf and post-prophetic. And that could have been the reason for this mix-up. Mm-hmm. I hope that makes sense and it's nothing too um, complicated and um, the points are clear, which uh, brings us to the final point, which is tawakkuf, um, suspension of judgment. As you can tell, ta'wil interpretation may not always be the, you know, the, the most robust and the most convincing approach. Then number two, the tarjih, the prioritization clearly can ruffle some feathers or it could take a lot of you know, effort and can be extremely challenging and strenuous. So if that doesn't float your boat, there's always the third option, which is to suspend judgment. And we have precedence for this. The famous Mamluk scholar, uh, Hafiz Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, he famously talks about the remnants of the previous civilizations. And then he says, I have yet to come upon a solution to this problem that um, that I don't have anything to resolve this uh, uh, problem. It's interesting. Some scholars say that Ibn Hajar 
um, his concerns stem from his reading of Ibn Khaldun. Because oh. he's predated by Ibn Khaldun and in his Muqaddim, Ibn Khaldun shows how, why are you concluding that humans were giants based on the size of the pyramids when we have the tombs of the pharaohs and they weren't that large? Like, it's, it's not that complicated. If you look at the dwellings of Ad and Thamud, their doors were average size. So it seems Ibn Hajar read this and he kind of internalized it. And instead of siding with him, he said, I'm not that comfortable, but I would say I don't have a clear cut solution to this. So tawakkuf is, it's a lesson in humility that um, I may not have the answer. Well, honestly, I don't have the answer to everything. Why do I have to have a position on everything and anything and everything? Mm-hmm. Which kind of brings us to the conclusion of the main thesis. As you can tell, there's a whole process. And it's like, it's very mechanical, plug and play. Take any hadith that you find uh, you know, problematic and difficult, and you put it through the system. How so? Uh, I will begin by weighing the contentions, weighing the authenticity of the hadith, and then I'll start with harmonizing the two. And if that's possible, fine and dandy. If not, then I will have to prioritize one over the other. And if that's not even feasible, I'm just going to suspend judgment. Mm. Now, I understand and I've, uh, I've spoken with a number of people about this uh, research and there are 101 questions that people raise, counter arguments, responses, and I'm more than willing to engage with those. But I do feel two points in particular need to be addressed before we have a more broad Q&A or a, a back and forth on this. The first is the issue of the laws of nature. And that is, there are so many things that we as Muslims accept are beyond our understanding, be our, our, our ability to fathom. If you are a theist, you automatically believe in things that cannot necessarily be proven through science, the idea of revelation, angels, the unseen. Mm-hmm. So if that is the case, why can't we just simply say miracles are a thing? Musa salam parted the sea. Isa salam brought somebody back from the dead. Well, in that list of things, Adam salam was 90 feet tall. His progeny was that tall as well. And I sympathize with that. And if you want to go that route, fine. But here are the problems with that. Number one is if we are to assume that this was a miraculous event, what are the broader implications of this hadith? The broader implications are our understanding of the physics, our understanding of just human science, everything need to be appended. Because not only was Adam that tall, his progeny was equally tall. And their progeny, well, beyond that, the animals, the food, the trees, the dwellings, and we don't have evidence of that. Well, you want to argue that they were riding dinosaurs and what, I mean, you can go down that route, but it's (laughs) not that convincing, you know? Uh, so, so that's on the one hand, the broader implications. But more importantly, at what expense are we doing this? If there's an explicit verse of the hadith stating that Moses parted the sea, I'm going to go with that because it's a one-off occurrence that happened and it's definitively established in the Quran. There's no questions, no doubts about that. Mm-hmm. But in this case, there's a hadith, granted it's found in the Sahihain, but in terms of its 
certainty, there is a difference of the inclusions of the inclusion of the uh, uh, contentious passages. So there's some cloud over there. Because of that, now I'm going to completely revisit our understanding of uh, science and archaeology. I feel we're better off, as Imam Ghazali said, reinterpreting it. So it's not to say there's no, we don't, we don't believe in scientism. We don't believe that Islam in its totality can be, you know, microscopically studied under, you know, under the microscope. Rather, there are things that pertain to the unseen, the ghaib. There's no question of, you know, keeping uh, science and empirical da- data away from that. But then you have things that relate to the shahada, that relate to the scene. And in this case, we will have to weigh the evidence. Mm. So khalqul ada, a change in the habitual course of nature requires compelling evidence. Yeah. And I, you, you, you hinted at this in the beginning, the idea of a paradigm shift. Many people have said to me in the past, wait, don't you think that um, our, your understanding of science will definitely change? Well, we went from Newtonian physics to Einsteinian physics. So doesn't that mean that what you think about the limits of human hide and whatnot will change? My answer to that is two things. Number one, yes, I accept the possibility that the science can change, but currently there is overwhelming evidence that this is problematic. So as of now, there's compelling evidence to hold this position and not go with the overt, literal interpretation of the hadith. And I I mentioned this earlier, we need a balance between what we read from the philosophy of science in that it's very subjective and relativist. But on the other hand, don't completely dismiss the science. Because Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, when he sees that, you know, the archaeology isn't supporting the idea of gradually decreasing human height, he could have simply said that, you know, science changes all the time, let's completely dismiss it. Rather, he said, this is a contention. I don't know how to respond to it. I'm just going to stay quiet for right now. So a paradigm shift is there, but we have enough evidence to uh, give the concerns the weight that they deserve. And finally, uh, yes, scientific inquiry uh, does have its limits. I'm not saying that, okay, if the idea of angels is problematic scientifically, dismiss that as well. No, there's a whole process as you've seen. And the last thing I want to mention before we uh, either wrap this up or have a conversation about what I've presented so far is... Do you not have any respect for Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim? Anybody who knows at least the little humble work that I've done, little bit of work that I've done in the past, it's all about Sahih al-Bukhari, the manuscripts of Sahih al-Bukhari, the transmission of Sahih al-Bukhari. And I, for one, have enough confidence in the Sahihain. However, it's reverence with pragmatism. Even the greatest scholars from Qurtubi to Ibn Taymiyyah, from Ibn Hajar to Al-Amir al-Sana'ani to Nawawi, just name these scholars, they were at times critical with the Sahihain as well. Granted, you have the requisite um, criteria and also you, um, you know what you're talking about. I'm not making this progressive argument that, yeah, let's just throw out Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim because it, they don't accord to my fancy and my whims. No, I'm saying... In a particular case, using this robust traditional model, perhaps we can revisit um, certain words. And that's the main point. I'm not saying that we reinterpret or prioritize or do tawakkuf of the entire hadith. It's just certain contentious parts of the hadith. 
I apologize if this was very long-winded and verbose. Um, that's just the nature of this presentation. There are just so many details, but I hope we can have a follow-up conversation mm. on some of the questions or issues that were raised. Well, thank you very much indeed uh, for that kind of condensed summary. Uh, obviously, the details are in the book, uh, which I, I do encourage you to read if you want a much more uh, thorough exp exploration. It's not very long, this book. It's only about 130-odd pages. Uh, but it's very uh, condensed uh, and intense in some ways as well. But um, I, I think something that struck me, I mean, I mean I'm obviously not an expert or anything, but one of the that struck me is that you, you, you do say in several places that the majority of the transmissions of the Hadiths, and they, uh, they have variants, but I'm just mm. looking at um, a particular uh, chart here. Um, the variants vary in the, in the case that you highlight, uh, between those that have the height description excluded and those that have the height description included. And those variants of the Hadith in the transmission of the Hadith that have the height description excluded, thus removing any problem for the modern person, are the majority, numerical majority of Hadith. Now, when I first read that, I thought, well, case closed. We can all go home now. <laughs> What's the yeah. problem? You know, because... Um, most of the Hadiths don't present a problem. Oh, yeah, there's a minority that do. Yeah, they're in Sahih Bukhari or Muslim, but they, the ones that don't have a problem are also in uh, Muslim, uh, Sahih Muslim, uh, as you've already said. But, uh, and you anticipate this very observational uh, uh, belief in, in your book, but I was wondering if you could explain why things are not quite so simple. We can't just yeah. wrap up the issue no problem, you know, most of these don't present, don't have that tr troublesome wording in. Therefore, mm. what's the problem? We can just go with yeah. that and ignore the others that do have it in because they're minority. Sure. Anyway. Why can't sure. we um, adopt that approach and say, sure. game over, let's move on? Well, what's wrong with that? I, I, I'd like to borrow the term used by Dr. Iftikhar Zaman, who in his uh, doctoral thesis in New Chicago on the Hadith of Sa'ad, he says, we need to weigh the reports, not count the reports. Right. Because you can have a hadith transmitted through 10 routes. Nine of them say X, and the 10th one says Y, but we still give more preference to the 10th because that particular student of that common source is a more reliable student. So if we take Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri as the madar, as the common link and source of Medina, mm. when Imam Malik narrates from him, it's very different from somebody like Qurra or another transmitter who's not nearly as, uh, uh, as well-known as a transmitter. So I, I pose this question and then I say, it's not that there are 70 routes and 60 of them say no problematic content and 10 of them do end of story. Hmm. Rather, we have a number of weighty reports as well. So from the first strata, there's Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Abu Sa'id al-Hudri. Yeah. From the second strata, from the students of Abu Huraira, you have A'raj and Hammam and these famous narrators, among whom some of them do not include the contentious passages. So it's not only a sheer debate on numbers, it's also about the value attached to each report that either includes or excludes the contentious right. words. Okay, that's a good response. Okay. Well, another, another thing, you, you mentioned in your detailed arguments about uh, uh, 
uh, Abu Huraira, the, the the great transmitter of, of hadith, and so many hadith, perhaps the, the largest proportion come from him, um, is that the students, it, 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 was, it is known that some of the students who wrote down hadith from him um, added is Israeliad or, or the or the or the the narrations of of another individual who you, who you do name. And so, sometimes they get mixed up, uh, sure. and, in a sense, corrupt the, the pure narration. Um, and, and thus, the suggestion might be that that in fact uh, that this contentious wording would come from an Israeliat source, actually, and not actually from the Prophet. Ultimately, um, sure. doesn't that kind of cause sufficient doubt in people's minds? As to the, the, the troublesome hadith that we're talking about, sure. we say, well, th- this thing's just so messy. We, we can't really know for sure what was said, so we're just going to leave that. No problem. So I have a number of thoughts on this. First of all, just to give some background on this incident, it's narrated by a student of Abu Huraira. His name is Busr ibn Sa'id. It's found in the Kitab al-Tamyiz of Imam Muslim, in which he says, I attended the hadith sessions of Abu Huraira, and after the session was done, I noticed the students confusing the words of Abu Huraira for the words of the Prophet or Ka'ab al-Ahbar, you know, just they're confusing what is prophetic and post-prophetic. Now, there's a few things here. The first and foremost, this shows that Muslim scholarship was vigilant and aware of this. It's not something that just happened under our noses. So that's the first thing we have to be aware of. If anybody opens up one book, Ilal of Adara Qutni, multi-volume collection, he is like a detective pointing out, these are the words of Abu Huraira confused for the words of the Prophet Sallallahu These are the words of Ka'b al-Ahbar, not the words of the Abu Huraira, not the words of the Prophet Sallallahu So there's a very surgical precision in how they have done this, which doesn't uh, you know, exclude the possibility that maybe a few have escaped their attention. Now, does that mean I've, I lose confidence in the entire Hadith tradition because of this? That's preposterous because just because there's a doubt in one or two cases doesn't mean we completely throw the baby out with the bathwater. Hadith scholars were well aware of this and they even say, when we say a hadith, hadith is authentic, we're not giving it 100% certainty. There's yeah. always that gray area of us being wrong in our authentication. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of examples of this. So I prefer using this as a tool of when you have no response and there's overwhelming evidence, a case may be made. Not that every time I'm uncomfortable, I'll say, yeah, this is just one of those things that the students of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu uh, was unable to you know, think of as the words of Abu Huraira and confuse it for the words of the Prophet In the case of the companion Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, Abdul Rahman ibn Sakhar, according to most accounts, um, I do think it's important to just go on a brief tangent because... What we don't want to leave people with is doubt about his transmission because mm. there are a number of questions that was Abu Huraira the source, source for uh, many of these problematic hadith that we see? And there are a number of issues with that. And I'm just going to mention two. I don't want to, this is a whole topic in and of itself. Hopefully, maybe this could be a future conversation. But two in particular, and that is there's a scholar from... Um, the Hijaz, his name is Diyar Rahman al-A'zami. And what he does is he takes the corpus of hadith transmitted by Abu Huraira. Mm-hmm. And he shows how from the 2000 odd hadith, it's famous that he narrated 5000, but that's an incorrect number. It's actually 2000. Um, he's corroborated in the vast majority. 
There's about 30 or 40 hadith that he does not have corroboration for, which means that what you may be blaming him to be the source of oftentimes could be just found from other sahaba like Samura or Jabir radiallahu anhu. Okay, so um, in brief, uh, the idea here is, yes, sometimes these hadith were confused, but we have to be very cautious and careful in how we utilize this, lest it's abused and used for the purpose um, for for an ulterior motive. Okay, fair enough. That's, that's, that's a fair, fair point. I, I've, got, I've got to ask, because I, I read this book, and I, I was like a detective story. I think, right, any moment now, the author's going to tell me what the solution is. He's going to tell me... <laughs> Where is a where's the, where's the body buried? Who was the kid? Where's it? You know what what happened? What really happened? And you don't. You at least I I missed the I missed the conclusion. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the revelation of who who done it? Who what happened? What's the truth? What should we think? And you don't really. And that's deliberate. I think you don't actually give an answer. You, you give a you give a paradigm. You give a methodology. You give a way of analysis analysis uh, uh, um, of of these kinds of hadith. And you're not tied to particular conclusions, but uh, can I can I can I um, you know press you now uh, on blogging theology to give us your view, sure. or you prefer to keep that secret? I would say I would love to plead the fifth, but uh, <laughs> there's there's a reason why I don't expressly state my view, and that is so anyone who reads the book can comfortably side with one opinion and not feel pressured. Because if I conclude and say Honestly, I think interpretation is the most convincing position. Then the reader now feels, yeah, then the author doesn't think much about position number three or position number two. I want to, I, I don't want to uh, pigeonhole anybody into my view. But if I, I consider all three valid, but if I were to put them in rank, oh, yeah. I would say I'm, I, I go in reverse order. I prefer tawakkuf, then tarjih, then ta'wil. Although the harmonization of saying that was his hide in paradise is commonly cited and usually makes the rounds, as I point out in the book, there are some hermeneutic concerns in terms of that being valid. Tawakkuf is, is a safe option, but then again, it's not satisfactory to yearning minds in that I need an answer. So if I were to tell somebody, you know, if you go with the second one and you just, um, you know, prefer the archaeological and scientific concerns, it's not the end of the world. But if you are pressuring me to give a position, I would side with what Sheikh Yunus Jompuri said, the famous commentator on Sahih al-Bukhari, and that's a hybrid model. And the hybrid model is we interpret the first part of the hadith and we say that was the height of Prophet Adam in paradise. And then the second part of the hadith, we say the scientific and archaeological concerns are more compelling. Hence, we dismiss it and say they were an interpolation. They were inserted by, you know, narrators who may have misunderstood. I feel that's a, that's a fair assessment and safe conclusion, which I can defend uh, more thoroughly, hopefully, in another session. Okay. Well, thank you for thank you for disclosing your, your that that's very very interesting. And I just wanted to share w- with everyone um, the uh, inscription, the dedication, I should say, of this book. Uh, just on the inside of the front cover, it's so touching. And and um, I'll read it to you. And, and in loving memory of the ulama who lost their lives to the COVID pandemic, and then you quote the Quran. Rather, they are alive but you perceive it not. 
they're alive but I, it was a sort of beautiful dedication and a sort of beautiful verse and yeah yeah i've lost a number of people who are very close to me and the idea here is not to be narrow or rigid obviously we pray for all those who lost their lives during the covid pandemic but a number of great scholars have you know parted from this world during the covid pandemic some of my own near and dear teachers people who i have the highest regard for they've left this world and it's always just a reminder that you know mm-hmm. don't uh, don't be too confident you know you you can be up next right so yeah i just dedicated to them and i do hope that um you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward them and anybody else who passed away during the pandemic abundantly and give them the status of a martyr. Absolutely. No, that, that's that's true. And uh, in, in the afterwards, the book, not written by yourself, uh, The Problem of the Israeli by Jonathan A.C. Brown, uh, which is actually a very a t- t- typical Brown essay, very entertaining and erudite mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and worth reading. So, uh, Andy, th- th- this is definitely worth reading, and it covers a, a bit of ground you haven't covered to do with yeah. the, way the scriptures the people of the book are viewed in the Islamic tradition in, in terms of their uh, verbal or textual corruption. Uh, and, and how interesting the- story. Interesting story about the postscript. I actually asked him to write like uh, a paragraph just to share his thoughts. And then I didn't hear back from him for like two months. And then he's like, oh, hey, by the way, I got good news. And I said, what? He's like, here's a 15-page essay. I said, how am I going to fit this inside the book? And I'm like, yeah, all right. I think I'll just call it an afterword and it's loosely related to it. So yeah, yeah. yeah. thanks to him for taking out the time for... It's one of the most well-written English treatments on the topic of Israeliyat that leaves you with a better understanding of how we should deal with them. Mm, yeah, it's definitely a, a, a bonus uh, to, to the reader to read that as well. So, uh, an afterword there by Jonathan A.C. Brown. So, uh, I think we'll, we'll perhaps conclude there. Um, but thank you very much uh, in, indeed, Montessir Zaman, for your time, your expertise, your dedication uh, in, in, in sharing this way of interpreting, interrogating, assessing, coming to terms with, finding solutions for uh, uh, hadith that we in our modern era some some people find problematic and uh, uh, so I do, I do recommend it's not a very long book but it, it is quite an intense book um, it's a very scholarly work obviously and I'll, oh, I'll link to this in the description below so you can get your own copies and read yourself um, there's some lovely um, a review on the back which I won't read from another very eminent professor um, who's actually appeared on Blogging Theology before as well so anyway from Brandeis University um so thank you so much for hosting me thank you for so thank you so much for um entertaining this somewhat long-winded and some may argue boring presentation but i do hope uh people can people have benefited from it and are able to um you know use it whenever they themselves find when they find themselves in very similar tricky situations exactly no that, that that's that's precisely the point so yeah thank you very much until next time Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.